Good evening. So um, the topic that I was given tonight is on the universal church. So when Crystal asked me to give this talk, I was pretty excited about it because, let me tell you, I freaking love the church. Like, I love the church so much, and I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about her tonight. Um, so like many of you, I was born and raised Catholic, which, by the way, I did not realize how weird it is that we say that I was born Catholic until I became really close friends with a convert. And she was like, I don't understand you Catholics. I don't understand why you said I was born Catholic. Like when Catholic babies come out, is the doctor like, it's a Catholic, <laughs> right? Because apparently other denominations don't say that. So I'm an extrovert, which means that sometimes I realize what I think about things as I'm saying them out loud. Anybody relate to this, extroverts? Okay. So yeah, sometimes my husband is like, wow, I didn't know you thought that. And I'm like, neither did I. News to both of us. So I had one of these moments a couple weeks ago when we were having dinner with a couple friends. And I was saying to them about my husband, I found someone who loved the church more than I did. And I married him real quick. And when I said that, I realized a couple things for the first time. One was that, um, in part, I was very attracted to my husband because we shared a mutual love. And second, I realized just how much love for the church has always meant to me. And I think, honestly, it just goes back to my love for Jesus. Because I fell in love with Jesus Christ as a young girl. And when I did, I also fell in love with his family, the church. And if you've ever thought to yourself, you know, I don't really have any particular love for the church, probably what that means is that you need to allow yourself to be loved by Jesus more. And then you need to love him in return. And the fruit of that love will be a love for his people, for the church. So what do we mean when we say the church? Because we use this word in a lot of different ways in a lot of different ways. We say things like, I'm at church, meaning like the building where we gather, the place where we meet and pray. We say things like, what time is church? Meaning mass or like our worship together. We say the Catholic church versus the Methodist church versus the Baptist church, meaning like a group of people who live and practice the same things. We say, the church says stealing is wrong meaning like the teaching authority of the church or the magisterium. We say St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church or Most Precious Blood Catholic Church, meaning our particular parish. And none of these ways of using the term church are wrong per se, but they're not quite right either. So the Catechism gives three definitions of, of what church means. The first one is of the group of people gathered together in worship, in liturgy. The second one is our local community. So our local church is the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. And the third definition is the universal community of believers. So notice when we talk about these, these three definitions that all of them refer to the people of God. The people of God is the church. We are the church. For example, using the, in fact, church buildings themselves, I find this super fascinating, were actually built to symbolically represent the people of God, the body of Christ. So like think about cruciform churches, 
Cruciform churches are the ones where like if you're looking down from the sky, you'll see a cross. So like uh, the cathedral is cruciform or most precious blood. Maybe some of you are from parishes that have cruciform churches. So the priest stands, um, like if you're looking at the cross, the, the priest stands where Christ's head would be on the cross because the priest acts in persona Christi Capitis in the person of Christ, the head at mass. And the people gathered together in worship, we form the body on the cross, which I think is super cool. Okay, so the New Testament has all kinds of different ways to talk about the church because whenever we talk about mystery, we talk about it through metaphor primarily. So the New Testament talks about, um, let's see, the people of God, the kingdom of God, the vine and the branches as a building or a temple, the household or family of God, the bride of Christ, which is one of my favorites, the sheepfold, and many more. Right? But the one I'm going to focus on today, tonight, is the church as the body of Christ. This is one of St. Paul's favorites, and he talks about the church as the body of Christ multiple times in multiple letters. Okay, and so the first one I'm going to draw from is Romans chapter 12, and this begins in verse 4. St. Paul says, For as in one body we have many parts, and all the parts do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. One of the things that I think is so important in this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ is unity. Unity. Unity is so important. And it flows from the fact that God is unity. God is unity. His very nature is unity, which is why there can be three persons, but only one God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so perfectly united with one another that they have the same essence, the same will. So that when the persons of the Trinity act, it's with the one will of the Trinity. When they love, it's with the one love of the Trinity. I'm not going to talk too much about the Trinity because at any given point I might misuse a preposition and I'll fall into heresy. And I'm pretty sure there's some theologians here who would love to call me on it. Point being, the unity is Trinity. And in the same way that we're called into the love of the Trinity, we're called into the unity of the Trinity through our participation in the body of Christ, the church. But don't think about unity abstractly. Think about unity in the concrete. Think about unity um, in the ways that we've experienced it authentically in our lives. Think about unity like those times of profound joy that you've had with close friends, with close connections, or the joy that you get when someone just understands you, they get you. You share something deep about who you are with another person. And there are a few things in the world that bring us more joy than that kind of unity or connection with other persons. Think about unity and its goodness and its profound joy in that way. And that is a foretaste of the unity that will be perfected for us in heaven, but only a foretaste. Because I, I don't think, honestly, we can even glimpse right now the goodness or joy we'll experience in the unity of heaven. But being united with one another in the church 
does not mean that we're all the same. This is also really important. It's actually just the opposite. Because in the church, we're called to be perfectly ourselves. And when we do this, we're able to unite with others properly. So in the image of the body, the parts of the body are all differentiated. Hair, fingers, eyes, heart, lungs. Each of the parts of the body are fully who they are. So like the heart has to function perfectly as heart. And the lungs have to function perfectly as lungs so that they're able to work together perfectly to pump oxygenated blood through the body. And it's in their perfect difference that they're able to be united in this like, common body, right? And that's, that's what it's like in the church. Um, we call this complementarity and diversity. Complementarity and diversity. And we see it in marriage too, um, which is really cool. Marriage is, a, is like a microcosm of the church. Um, and we, we see this complementarity and diversity precisely in the difference between man and woman and the spouses. Because it's written in the very bodies of man and woman. That their difference, um, in the bodies of man and woman, their physical difference makes physical unity possible. Right? Diversity and complementarity. So in the church we see this diversity and complementarity. But again, instead of like losing ourselves or who we are, um, we're more capable of unity the more we become fully ourselves. And I think the perfect model for what this looks like is, of course, the saints. Um, the saints show us what it means to become fully yourself. Um, I think as Catholics, <laughs> I think as Catholics sometimes we see sanctity or the saints like a Japanese game show. So, <laughs> have you guys ever watched Japanese game shows? I promise this relates. Okay, so if you, if you go on YouTube and just look up Japanese game show, you will not be disappointed. They are so ridiculously funny. So my favorite one is probably the first one that's going to come up when you search it in YouTube. And it's this game where the contest, there's one or two contestants, and they're standing like on this platform. <laughs> and behind them is a pool of water. And the game is that this wall comes out and is coming towards them rather quickly and there's a hole cut into the wall in a particular shape and it's different every time, every round. And the wall's coming at them and it's going to push them in the pool of water unless they contort their bodies in such a way to like fit through the shape. I promise you this is entertainment for hours, right? But I think sometimes we view sanctity or holiness like this. We view it as like a contortion of who we are, that we have to change who we are to look at this, look like this perfect shape of what it looks like to be a saint. And it's it's quite the opposite. Again, it's it's this becoming fully who we are. The saints don't lose any of their personality as they become holy. And I just, I love looking at the diversity and personalities of the saints. One of my favorite saints is Philip Neary. Any Philip Neary fans out here? Yeah. Philip Neary is the best. I just love him. He gives me so much hope for my future. <laughs> His personality was so funny though, and none of that changed as he became holy. So he used to say the only thing you should take seriously in life is sin. And he used to do crazy things just to make people laugh, like he would shave off half his beard or turn his clothes inside out and prance about town just to make people laugh. And he was known to make the priests in his oratory read joke books when he thought they were taking themselves too seriously. I love it. 
Francis of Assisi never lost his passion as he became holy. St. Peter never lost his impetuousness. They were refined for sure, but their personalities didn't change. St. Therese and Mother Teresa never lost their stubbornness, praise God. I recently learned that Mother Teresa took her name after St. Therese of Lisieux. I did not know that. I think that's pretty cool for a lot of reasons because they have this like similar stubbornness and determination that I love in both of them. So Catherine of Siena says this line that everybody knows is super famous. She says, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. Um, and I, I don't think there are many quotes from the saints that are more true than that. Be who God meant you to be and you'll set the world on fire. I'm read this passage from Romans again but with a couple extra verses tacked onto it. Again, this is Romans 12. For as in one body, we have many parts, and all the parts do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them. If prophecy, in proportion to the faith, if ministry, in ministering, if one is a teacher, in teaching, if one exhorts, in exhortation, if one contributes, in generosity, if one is over others with diligence, and if one acts in mercy with cheerfulness. Um, so it's this way of saying that like, what God has given you is yours, um, and, and we perfect it as we grow in holiness through, through this virtue. So the saints are not only perfected in their personalities, but they're also given different tasks. So when you look at the group of saints, like they're, they're called to every job or task under the sun. Like we have doctors, mothers, scholars, scientists, janitors, teachers, preachers, etc. The active life and the contemplative life. This is the body of Christ, this complementarity and diversity. Now I'm going to pivot for, to another Bible verse that is not obviously related, but is. And this is um, a passage from Matthew 25. And this is the, the really scary passage of the judgment of the nations. And this is where Jesus um, talks about the end of time when he'll separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are on the left and the, no, yeah, the sheep are on the right and the goats are on the left. And he turns, and we all, I'm pretty sure we all know this passage. He turns to the goats on the left and he says, uh, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. A stranger and you did not welcome me. Sick and imprisoned and you did not visit me. Uh, and if you did not do this for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. And he sends them off to eternal punishment. If you have never spent time reflecting, meditating with Matthew 25, I suggest that you do it. Because it's sobering and a little bit terrifying. Lot. I thought about it a lot. And one of the fruits of my reflection is I think what Jesus is saying in part in this passage is don't neglect the person that's in front of you. Because at any given point, somebody might cross our path in need of water or food or shelter, and we're to minister to the person in front of us, always. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. But I think it also, um, it also demands the unity of the church. Because I'm not capable personally of attending to all the needs of the people around me. I, I can't personally 
visit the sick or in prison or, or feed the hungry or clothe the naked around the world. I can't even do that for all the people in need in my neighborhood. But because of the unity of the church, when the church does these things, I do. And when I do, the church does. This is unity in the body of Christ. When Mother Teresa attends to the needs of the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India, that's the church, the body of which I am a part. The Catholic Church is the largest charitable institution in the world. We also educate more children than any other institution in the world. We protect the weak, we advocate for the, for the vulnerable, we attend to the sick, and we welcome the immigrants. This is the body of Christ, the church. St. Therese, I think, is a great example of this, because she very badly wanted to be a missionary. And she never was. She, she died at age 24 before ever leaving um, the convent that she joined at, I think, age 15. But instead, she offered all of her little prayers and little sacrifices for the missions. And when she was canonized, the church actually named her patroness of the missions, even though she was never a missionary. Because the church, I think, recognizes that the prayers and sacrifices of one little nun in France is just as important as the missionary who's going to far off lands, teaching, preaching, and serving. Because this is the body of Christ. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. I had a friend in college whom I, I really loved, and she actively served in this, this thing we called homeless ministry. And this ministry consisted of uh, Steubenville grads, and you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, better. Um, so homeless ministry consisted of, of food and fellowship on the streets of downtown Pittsburgh once a week, every Thursday, for the homeless. And my friend, she met a woman there week after week who was addicted to narcotics and had previously been unable to get clean even though she wanted to. So my friend asked the Lord for a particular grace. She asked the Lord for the grace of being able to share in the withdrawal symptoms of this woman so that this woman would be able to get clean when she went into rehab. And by the grace of God, this occurred. So for 24 hours, she experienced all the, the symptoms you would have in drug withdrawal. This is the body of Christ. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Um, so St. Francis of Assisi, whom I also love, um, one of the last things he said on his deathbed, he was talking to his brothers in the order. He said, I have done what is mine to do. May Christ now teach you what you are to do. I have done what is mine to do. May Christ now teach you what you are to do. And I've thought about this a lot, and, and I think it's helped me a lot in understanding that like, all of us aren't called to change the world, but all of us are called to do what is ours to do. Sometimes I see a lack of appreciation for this diversity, um, probably not by anybody who's here at Theology on Tap, but you've probably seen it out there too. Um, and it's like these accusations that fly when, when you're not focusing on, on the particular issue that, that others care about. So, so we'll see it, especially in, in issues that are politically charged. So we'll see like someone's advocating for the rights of the unborn and we'll see people say like, well you must not care about the immigrants or you only care about people before they're born, right? We've probably heard this, right? And on the other side, you see somebody advocating for the poor and people will say to them like, how, why do you care about that? Why are you spending your time on that when thousands of babies are being killed in abortion every day, right? 
Like this, this is of the devil. Like I'm an extrovert and I speak hyperbolically a lot. Like I, I live in the world of exaggeration. My husband will be the first to tell you. But I am not being hyperbolic when I say this kind of division is of the devil. Because I'll say it again, God is unity and we're called into that unity and the opposite of that is division. And that's what the devil wants of us. He wants us to be divided. And that's what is mine to do. And the body of Christ takes up the rest. Or at least it's called to. Because I see sometimes we look out at the world and we see a lot of needs that aren't met by the church. Um, and it's really sad when we think about it. We see a lot of needs that aren't met. And I think it's for a couple reasons. One is our lack of unity in the church. So we always need to be working toward unity with one another. And I think the second reason is individual members that aren't taking up or being open to their call from Christ. I'm going to read another passage. And this one is from 1 Corinthians. And this one's a lot longer, so I want you to like get comfortable, buckle in. I'm going to read it real slow. It's like 20 verses, okay? Chapter right before. And again, this is where St. Paul, one of, one of the times he's talking about the church is the body of Christ. This, uh, so it's chapter 12, and it starts at verse 12. And as a body is one, though it has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free persons, we were all given to drink of the one spirit. And now the body is not a single part, but many. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. Or if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it does not for this reason belong any less to the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God placed the parts, each one of them, in the body as he intended. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, nor again the head to the feet, I do not need you. Indeed, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are all the more necessary. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we surround with greater honor. And our less presentable parts are treated with greater propriety. Whereas our more presentable parts do not need this. But God has so constructed the body as to give greater honor to a part that is without it, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the parts may have the same concern for one another. This is my favorite verse coming up. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. 
Some people God has designated in the church to be first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then mighty deeds, then gifts of healing, assistance, administrations, and variety of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work mighty deeds? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts. And then the last verse of this chapter, St. Paul says, but I shall show you a still more excellent way. And then he starts to talk about love. Like nothing, nothing done without love um, is, is worth anything. Okay. There's so much to unpack in, the, in that giant passage. I could spend my whole talk just talking about a couple verses in there. Um, but it's, it's worth meditating on. So after Matthew 25, go to 1 Corinthians 12 and spend some time in your prayer reflecting on that and what the Lord has to tell you through that particular passage. So good. Um, but I, I think for those of you who have experienced a great love for the church or felt the unity of the church, you've probably felt this verse, that when one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it, and when one part is honored, all the parts share its joy. Because I know I've tasted that verse um, with the highs and the lows of, of being a member of the church. So going back to this, this quote from St. Francis, I have done what is mine to do. And it's like what St. Paul is talking about. We're all given a different task in the body of Christ. I've done what is mine to do. Jesus Christ has given each of you a mission, a particular mission for this particular age and time. And if you don't do it, it's not done. Because it's not like God created you and like 15 others and is like, hey, I have a task and surely one of these 15 people will do it. Like that is not how it works. God created you with a specific mission that only you can do. And if you don't do it, it's not done. It's not done. But I think before we even talk more about that, we have to go back to the first three talks we had at Theology on, the, on Tap this summer here. Um, because you're not equipped for your mission or your task in the church or connected with the body of Christ if your life is not given over first to Jesus Christ, if it's not lived with him daily in prayer, and if it's not united with him in the Eucharist. From this flows your unity and mission in the church. Because if you don't get the relationship right, you won't get the mission right. We talk a lot about like what we're called to do or how we're called to behave in the church. I feel like a lot of our homilies talk about like, do this, don't do this, serve the world, don't do these bad things. That's true and that's good, but it's also secondary. It has to be secondary because you were created first out of love by the Father. You, you, you were created to be loved out of love by God the Father. You were created just because God loves you, that's it. He loved you into existence and then secondary to that the father says okay beloved child i have a task for you now but you can't live for christ well if you don't first live with him we've got to get the relationship right to rest in the love of the father who created us and to live with the son who redeems us if you get that right you'll get your mission right and your task will flow forth from that. Okay. How am I doing on time? 
anyone? <laughs> okay, cool. Okay, so um, Pentecost is the day we talk about being the birthday of the church. Um, we had a long conversation with friends recently around Pentecost on whether that's properly true. Um, it was a great conversation, and the fruit of it was we determined, yes, it is true that Pentecost is the birthday of the church. We can say that because the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles and empowers them and equips them to go out into the world in a really powerful way. And this is the birth of the church. But it's the birth of the church in the same way that like, when a baby is born, it's not the first time they were formed. They've been formed in the womb for 12 months. And this is true of the church. So Jesus is forming embryonically the church well before Pentecost. And one of those particular places that he does so is in Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14 is that famous passage where Jesus names Peter as the first pope, the head of the church, when he says, you are rock, you're Peter, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against it. So Peter's my favorite saint, he always has been since I was very young. And I used to read the Bible passages um, with St. Peter over and over again, and I feel like I really learned how to love Jesus through St. Peter. Um, we have a friend who says that, that we don't choose the saints, the saints choose us, and I think that's really true, because I think the saints call us, the saints choose to be intercessors for us, um, and, they, and they draw us to them, and I, I felt that way with St. Peter in particular. So I can't tell you how many times I read this I've read this passage in Matthew 14, you are rock and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of another world will not prevail against it. And when I would reflect on this verse, I used to think of the church as like a fortress that Christ creates, like this fortress and the gates of the netherworld can't tear it down and even though for 2,000 years the church has always had sin and the church has always had corruption, that the devil can't knock it down. Until in college someone pointed out to me, gates aren't for attack, they're for defense. Because Jesus says the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against the church. He does not say the arrows of the netherworld will not prevail. He does not say the swords of the netherworld will not prevail or the battering rams of the netherworld will not prevail. He says the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against the church. And my mind was blown because this means the church is the aggressor in this situation. Like we're the ones attacking them. We attack the devil and we attack the kingdom of darkness, the netherworld. That is our job in the church, which is super cool. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the kingdom of the netherworld, the kingdom of darkness, Satan's dominion, invaded. And when Jesus dies on the cross, it's exactly like when Aslan dies in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Spoiler alert, but honestly, if you don't know the story by now, that is 100% your fault. <laughs> When Aslan dies and rises in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the White Witch knows that it's over. It is over. She's been defeated. And they still have this epic battle afterwards, but her power is largely gone. Right? So when Jesus dies and rises, Satan knows it's over. The war is over. And he's still going to battle because he doesn't want to give up this kingdom that he's invaded. But Jesus says the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against his church. And so being part of the church is, in a sense, a call to arms. Because do you know what we call the church on earth? We call the church in heaven the church triumphant, and we call the church in purgatory the church suffering. Do you know what we call the church on earth? Militant. The church militant. <laughs> like military. 
because being part of the church on earth is a call to arms. It's a call to take up the fight against the kingdom of darkness. Um, Father John Ricardo, if anybody listens to him, this is one of his favorite sayings. He says this all the time. God wants his world back. And we're fighting in the final battles of this war. So uh, has anybody ever done the Alpha program here? Anybody know what Alpha is? Alpha's lovely. I love it. We do it twice a year at Precious Blood, and there's some other places around the diocese that do it. Um, Alpha is basically the Gospel 101. So it's really just about, like, who is Jesus? Why and how do I pray? Why and how do I read the Bible? Why does any of this matter? And how is this believable kind of stuff? Um, it's 11 weeks. Um, and like I said, we run it twice a year. So it's a great place if you have, like, atheist or agnostic or searching friends. It's a great place to bring them. Um, and it's a place just kind of openness and open dialogue. Um, but I've gone through it like five times now and I find something inspirational in it every time I do it. But there's one moment in one of the Alpha videos where it uses this analogy that I love. And, and it talks about how our life on Earth now is like the time between D-Day and VE Day in World War II. So D-Day, when we invade Normandy, right, we capture the beach, which is really unexpected. The war is over at that point, essentially, because the tide has been turned. But there's still a lot of battles, and we don't have, the war doesn't end for 11 more months until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And the time we live now, like the war's been won by the death and resurrection of Christ. But we're living in this time when we're, we're fighting the final battles of this war. And our job is to liberate captives. Our job is to set the prisoners free. Our job is to proclaim the good news of the victory in this war. Um, there's a bishop I really like, Bishop Flores. He's the bishop of Brownsville, Texas. And this is something he says a lot, that, that the world is caught in, in El Cuba del Mundo, the game of the world, the game of the world. And people are hurting, and people are broken, People are trapped and caught in sin. That's the kingdom of darkness. That's the netherworld, the kingdom of the netherworld. And we've got to break down those gates. The Lord wants to win all people back to himself, back to his body, his kingdom, his sheepfold. So we had a summer seminarian this summer, Mark Hellinger. Some of you probably know him. He did a summer series where he gave a series of talks at our parish, and he used this analogy, which he said he stole from a priest who stole it from another priest, so I don't know how far back it goes. But it was good, so I'm in turn stealing it. And he used this analogy for the lay people in the church and the priest as like Batman and Alfred. And <laughs> I know, it's funny, right? So you might think when you hear that, like, the priest is Batman and we're Alfred, but it's actually like quite the other way around because the priest, like, stays in the parish to minister to the church and we, the lay people, go out into the world. That's our job as lay people, to live in the world, to work in the world, to go out on mission, just like Batman. We're fighting this battle. Um, and, and in this analogy, I, I think of the parish as like the Batcave where Alfred hangs out, right? So Batman goes out and he like fights for good against evil and he comes back bruised and broken and hurt often and Alfred tends to his wounds and gives him strength and nourishment and rest and that's what the priest and the parish do for us. We go back to the parish for the Eucharist where the Lord heals us and the Lord strengthens us and this is why coming to Mass every single Sunday is essential because it is the place where we go um, to receive healing and nourishment, also confession and other things of the parish, where we receive strength. Okay. 
I think I'm going to leave you tonight with one kind of final Bible verse or passage, I guess, that I really like. Um, and it's kind of loosely connected with the church, but it's um, it has been for me a, a source of a lot of prayer because I think it's really beautiful. So this this is where I actually don't even know where it is. I don't have the chapter and verse, but it's it's that place in the Gospels, um, one of the two places where it says Jesus cries. Uh, it actually says that he weeps, and this one in particular is when Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, and so Jerusalem in the Gospels takes on the metaphor of like the whole people of God. So when he says Jerusalem, he means like all of Israel and then really all of the church. He says, um, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her flock under her wings, but she would not come. And it says Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps for the disunity of the church. Jesus weeps when people don't come to him to be gathered together. I was listening to a homily once when a preacher was pre preaching on this passage, and he was telling this story. He was a farm boy, grew up out in the country, and for those of you who grew up in the country, um, you've probably seen this, where they, there's certain crops where they'll burn the fields after, and it like releases nutrients back into the soil. And he was walking through a field that had just been burned, and he came across a hen that was in the field, and it had been burned to death, like it was scorched. And as he walked by, he just kind of like nudged it with, its, with his foot, and out from underneath the charred wings of the mother hen were these three little chicks that were still alive and healthy. Okay. And so this is what Jesus does for us when he dies on the cross. Like in John's Gospel, he says, when I'm lifted up, meaning on the cross, when I'm lifted up, I will gather all people to myself. Like in the cross, Jesus gathers us together. He dies for us, and the good news is he rises from the dead. And I think this passage for me is just a reminder that like when you draw close to Christ, close to his heart, that you're also close to everybody else in the church. And I think I'm gonna let that be the end. The end.